Hi, I'm Charles. Hi, I'm Bailey. And you are listening to Hold Me, I'm Scared. Welcome back to Hold Me, I'm Scared, where each week we pick out a fear and explore it. This week, we are talking about doctors. Who? Now look, I don't know what you think about doctors, but I feel like I trust doctors on like a large part, but honestly, doctors can be kind of scary because you're, you're putting yourself, your sick, vulnerable self in the hands of just another person. And did they study medicine? Hopefully. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I, I, I really hate needles, which is pretty normal. I haven't had like the best experience with doctors, but who has? You know. I mean, I feel like I've had a pretty good experience with doctors. Um, I I do often though get sinus infections and I know this and I know I just need antibiotics but so many times the doctor will just say if it's not like the normal doctor that I see will just be like no it's just a virus and it'll go away I'm like well it's been a virus for a while and then they're like no and I'm like okay and that's kind of scary too because like they think they know but you're like it's my body yeah I had like horrific fatigue from the time I was a teenager until a year ago and every time I went to the doctor I was like hey I'm really tired to the point that some days I cannot get out of bed and it's like abnormal and they were always like well you're either pregnant or crazy (laughs) and last year I finally went to a doctor who was like it could be psychological but even if it is we should still fix it Uh, And he put me on an antidepressant that I've never tried before that literally cured my fatigue. I've been trying for 10 years. And it just took... Party. Yeah. that See, that's scary too, is like so many doctors, you can go to so many doctors and then finally, like at the end of some long journey, get a doctor that can give you the right thing. Or you can have the same doctor that tries this and tries that and that doesn't work and you kind of feel like a guinea pig until eventually something just works oh yeah and also like i kept getting prescribed the same any like type of antidepressants over and over again and every time i told a doctor like this doesn't work for me or i had an issue with the fact that a lot of antidepressants like killed my sex drive and every time i brought that up they were basically like well you're a woman so who cares if you like sex Um, See, that's scary too. It was like never taken seriously until I finally just happened to go to this one doctor and he totally believed me and like everything I was experiencing. He was like, I was like, hey, I would like to still want to have sex. And he was like, oh yeah, well, we just won't give you something that makes you feel like you don't want to have sex. And I was like, "Oh, oh, oh, yeah, that sounds nice. That's pretty cool, dude. 
God. And that... I, and it was that easy. Right. Just somebody with one, one medication. meeting with him. Just one? Yeah. And then he finally tried something. Like, he actually took my feedback and listened to it and tried something that has worked really well for me for a year now i've and uh it's like sucks because this medication that i'm on now has been out there the entire 10 years that i've been trying to correct my fatigue and like no one just tried it because no one listened to me and that's i mean when it comes to like a a basic like viral or bacterial illness and people are afraid to go to the doctor i'm like whatever but when it comes to like just other things like being a woman or especially like a woman of color and being afraid of going to the doctor for any other reason that's not just like something like very like normal sick like that's a very valid scary reason and uh, because I've we've heard so many at least I have heard so many horror stories especially from women about doctors not believing them and then them being obviously right this whole time. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. I like, I have nothing to add. It's just terrifying. It yeah. It's just terrifying. <laughs> and that fear has a name. It's called iatrophobia. I mean, that leads us into our facts and figures portion. Uh, so... The sources for this are NBC News article by Wendy Rose Gold and U.S. News article by Lisa, yes, Esposito. Um, So yes, like I said, the name of it is iatrophobia. And according to Dr. Barbara Cox, a psychologist in San Diego, only 3% of the population suffers from iatrophobia. She explained to NBC News that the primary reason behind the fear of doctors is actually the fear of getting bad medical news, which is very understandable. <laughs> Nobody wants to go to the doctor yeah. and get bad news. Nobody wants to get bad news in general. Um, Dr. Mark Romano, a psychologist, nurse practitioner, and assistant medical director at Delphi Behavioral Health, who was also interviewed by NBC, further explained that the fear of medical personnel is a conditioned response. He posits that because most people only go to the doctor when they're ill, they become accustomed to getting unpleasant news at the doctor's office. Therefore, the association between anxiety and the doctors is one that becomes stronger and stronger each time a person has to go to the doctor. Other fears that are commonly associated with medical personnel are fear of the unknown, fear of pain, fear of needles, which is a big one, fear of blood, and fear of illness. David Yusko, clinical director at University of Pennsylvania's Center for Treatment and Study of Anxiety, treats patients with iatrophobia and recommends exposure therapy. <laughs> His process involves patients confronting a series of triggers which gradually increase in intensity. For example, a patient might start with viewing pictures of medical equipment, then graduate to watching TV shows with medical personnel procedures. Now, when I read that earlier, I was like, I don't know about that one, because I feel like shows are much more (laughs) dramatic than normal life. And this, (coughs) like, it's not like, I don't know, I imagine being like, watch Grey's Anatomy. I don't know that that is... That's actually the show that was mentioned in the article. Is it? Look, I... I don't know. I feel like for the the general person, seeing some of, like, the graphic things that they do might not be good, but I'm not a psychologist, so who knows? Well, it's Uh, because 
it's not so much about what they're seeing it's the degree of separation from what's happening it's like a, a non-moving picture versus like a moving video with dialogue like it's um it's like a step towards reality to be right. in the room with a doctor so it's less about like the the specific content and more about like graduating in in intensity just like seeing the environment um which too bad there's not like the office medical version um which i guess could be gray's anatomy but i feel like gray's anatomy is much more serious i don't know because if it was like an office the office like doctor version the head doctor would be like completely inept and then that would probably yeah, not make and then that might go. make them more scared. <laughs> Maybe they do want yeah. the more assertive, knowledgeable doctor. I'm sure the scenes that they show them of Grey's Anatomy are not like the ones where people are like two people stuck together by a pole that impaled them both. I'm sure it's like more of the general atmosphere of the hospital. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what show I would recommend, but they said Grey's Anatomy. Maybe it's... But, and it does say graduate to watching TV shows with medical personnel. And these are people who are genuinely, like, terrified by any medical uh, establishment. So it says the goal is to work the patient up to being able to manage their anxiety enough to get the medical care and checkups necessary to stay healthy, which is very important. According to USCO, the vast majority of patients that undergo exposure therapy do reach a point where they are able to successfully attend doctor and dentist appointments by the end of their course of treatment, which is very nice because even though the doctor can be really, really scary, sometimes you do just have to go for things that are usually not scary, like a sinus infection, and then you get some pills, and then you're okay. And you don't have to go back for a long time. I feel like at some point, you shouldn't have to go. Like, if you have chronic sinus infections... What do you mean? You just... Like, you just can call the doctor and be like, it's happened again. Yeah. <laughs> like, sometimes I think it's a little much that you have to, like, go to the office so they can confirm that you have a stuffy nose. Or, like, if you're throwing up, it's like, call me in some Finnergan. Like, I, I don't want to have to go to a doctor when I'm, like, pukey for them to be like, yep, you're puking. Sure thing. Guess you need this. I know. Sometimes I... Look, I know that we are in, like, what seems to be the age of over-information to where us, as the normal everyday consumer who is not a medical professional can get quite a lot of information and self-diagnose and just through your own history you can know what you've used that works for you but like you said I feel like a lot of the times we shouldn't have to go through this whole process to go to see them just for them to be like yep you were right because most of the time we are I at least did get to that point with my auntie who said like if you get another sinus infection and you know that you know it's a sinus infection, just call the office and I will prescribe you antibiotics. And I like that. Yeah. It's it's just a bit much sometimes. It is. You know, it's like we get because it. Because I would, I would have to go to the doctor. I would get sick with a virus and then I would kind of wait it out to see if anything happens. Nothing happened. So then I would go and, and say, here's what happened. I have a virus. 
90% sure it turned into a sinus infection, fix it. And they'd be like, well, no. I don't think that's what it is. And then I'd be like, okay. And then I'd come back a week later and it would be worse. And they'd be like, oh, I guess it turned into a sinus infection. And I'd be like, yes, yes, it did. Isn't that surprising? Right. Like it could have been fixed by then, but. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do respect doctors. One of my very good friends um, is a doctor and I love him. So it's this is not like a doctor bashing podcast, but like at some point, like, come on, give it a rest, guys. Right, and look, I am pro-doctor most of the time. I like a good pill to fix my problems. It uh, excites me. You know, a surgery every now and then, get into it. I'm here. No. Oh, well, maybe that's just me. What surgeries have you had? I've had only two. I've had a tonsillectomy and then a septoplasty. Okay. So that's why you don't mind a surgery. To which it turns out that my septoplasty, my septum, which they did undeviate from the left, is now still deviated to the left. You shouldn't have tried to change her. Screw her. I will say, though, the tonsillectomy wonders. Because you remember, I got strep throat or a throat infection like every month for almost a year and it was annoying get over it already you know (laughs) 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 i do remember that the night before we went to walmart and we got a whole bunch of stuff remember that me and you Mm -hmm. (laughs) no you don't remember i like do remember that you had no, I remember you had surgery, and I remember when you had your tonsils out, and I told you, like, oh, it's going to hurt really bad, because you're an adult, and it, it's, like, always hurts way worse. And you were like, thank you. Yes, and it sure did, and... I'm assuming we got you, like, ice cream. Yeah, because I was still vegetarian at that point, so I ate ice cream, but all I wanted was just a slushie. That seemed to be what worked best for me. I I do you rem- I I do you remember? <laughs> Hello. I do remember you wanted slushy. I also remember this lady in uh, my old office job. She told me that after my surgery to eat salt and vinegar chips. She was like that's going to be like something that's really beneficial for you. Yeah, that's insane. And I'm like, "What what what part of opened wounds in my throat?" And crunchy, sharp, acidic mm. chips going down my throat sounds like a good idea to you. Maybe it's because, like, then, by comparison, the, like, general pain you were feeling wouldn't be so bad. Right. Just make it worse. And then it won't hurt as bad as it did. It'll just hurt different and more. I don't know. Um, yeah. It's a good thing I was let go from that job. I don't know. A lot of people... I. Someone told me that, like, uh, if I, like, had, like, a bunch of mucus in my throat back when I did musical theater, (laughs) remember that uh, disaster, Um, someone told me to, like, drink Coca-Cola and eat potato chips. And I was like, that sounds... Wrong. Not real. (laughs) Right. 
<laughs> like that does that not sound what I should be doing. Like just like general mucus? Or was it like sickness? Yeah. Or like a, and like a sore throat and like drain like sinus drainage. That does not compute for me. And this is why I think we need actual doctors. Maybe we do need doctors. Look, I think we need doctors. I just think they need to, like, you know, relax a little bit. Right. And there always is, listen, with every group, every group, there is always the bad eggs. It's just an unfortunate reality. Not me and Bailey. We, out, out of any podcast group, out of any acting group, people group, um, we're not bad. We're good. And we're glad you're here listening. We're, we're good. If eggs. you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a good egg too. Good for you. Good egg club. <laughs> Hashtag good egg club. <laughs> um, oh, um, I was going to ask you. Party. Okay. It's a thing. And I will continue to make it a thing. Yeah. What are you afraid of today? Mm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the big fears. Oh, it could be a little well, fear. No, I know. Um, I'm. Oh, th- this is like some just like a passing fear. Like I was thinking, I I'm like scared that I'm never uh, gonna retire. Oh, like you'll work forever. Yeah, I'll just work until I'm dead. I love how. That's exactly what you mean. That was my attempt at a little fear. Um, It's a good one. Um, But I love how I retorted it with just describing it in another way. I'm afraid to retire. So you're afraid that you're going to work forever? Yes. Yes. That's what never retiring usually That's understandable, I feel. Especially in today's American society and our current lots in life. It sounds like a very reasonable thing to worry about yeah and i like saw an article that was saying like our generation is the first generation that like might not ever be able to or like the vast majority of us won't be able to ever retire so i was like ah woohoo cool did anybody the future oh by the way shout out to a dried fruit friend she texted me and i forgot to tell you that she said oh no bailey be hurting my feelings <laughs> she said i didn't know she had such strong opinions on no! dried fruit i literally don't i was just in a mood that's what happens okay it's she wasn't totally serious okay either. to not take i was gonna say don't take anything i say seriously like err on the side of i'm not being serious that's just a good rule to follow with me sometimes i just like to be dramatic just like just spice things up you know but sometimes she is just a bitch and that's just her personality (laughs) (laughs) but no i I i'm sorry dry fruit girl i do like you you sound great i could totally say her name it sounds like i'm like don't mean it but i mean that i love calling her just dried fruit girl it keeps the mystery alive it really does what are you afraid of today i'm afraid that i'll never be able to clean up my apartment because every time that i try to i always have something else to do (laughs) and Mm -hmm. i've kept the kitchen afloat for the most part but um the rest of it is a clear a clear visual aid for what my mental state is and that 
not great. <laughs> yeah. I was, we were texting last week about cleaning our apartments. And I did. And I didn't. It sounds like you did not. Nope. It's okay. Mine's already getting messy again. Every day, as adults, we wake up, we do our silly little tasks, only to need to do them again in 24 hours. And that's what makes it a scary world out there. <laughs> Bye. Uh, no, but for real, listen. Uh, Bailey is going first this week with yeah. her, like I said, we're the good egg club. But she has, I'm sure, good. a bad doctor egg. I have a, I have a bad egg club member. Um, so I definitely forgot to do a Would You Rather, so let me... Oh, no, make it up. Okay. Would you rather... Oh, okay. Would you rather have a loving parent, but you are their least favorite child? Yes. Or <laughs> or have um, a, dif- a, a difficult and domineering parent... But you are their most favorite child. Ooh. Um. See, on the one side, you have, I'll always have love, but I might not have ever had anybody to push me. But being raised in a a loving parent home. But they love you the least. You'll be good. And you know. Like, they love you the least out of all of your siblings, and you're aware of that. They still love you, but it's like... That hurts. Yeah. But then you have, I'm the favorite star, but this is the mean stage mom or sports dad who critically analyzes everything that you do, and you're probably not ever going to be good enough. Yeah. But they still really, really, really like you. But I feel like, I don't know. I don't like that. I don't want that. I'd rather be the least favorite and have a parent who loves me instead of being the one that is harshly, like, criticized every single moment of the day because, like, you're their golden child. That's fair. Ew. So basically, like, how you were raised. Was I raised that way? You're no. the least favorite. Oh. No. Well, uh, some, some might disagree. My... Sisters always say that I'm my mother's favorite. I think I, well, I don't think I'm the least favorite of my father's anymore. <laughs> but we're not going to get into oh that. Um, I don't think, my parents say they don't have favorites. All parents have favorites, I feel like. Okay. Yeah. I am not a parent, but I am a teacher. And I know that's different. But I have favorites. I totally have favorites. And my kids are babies. They can't even talk yet, and I have favorites. So maybe maybe we're maybe we're like not bad eggs. Maybe we're members of the neutral egg club since we have favorite children. But I don't. No, no. I. We're good eggs. We are good eggs, and that is trademarked. That's <laughs> going to be our I, fr- our first merch. Well. <laughs> Good egg club. But that's not very vegan. But you know what? We all come from eggs. Whoever said it had to be a chicken egg? Yeah. We're good. The good ovary club. The good ovo. We're still eggs. Oh, 
what is it? What is the? This is why we need doctors. What's the medical term for like the egg? In the the woman. <laughs> What is no, the, the egg man, and the woman? The man egg. Hang on. Well, let me look. Name for egg in human Uber. <laughs> called, okay. The ovaries produce the egg cells called ova or oocytes. Okay. It has two O's. The oocytes then are transported to the fallopian tube where the fertilization of sperm may occur. The fertilized egg moves to the uterus. Yes, we know how this works. Okay, so I guess the egg cells are called ova or oocytes. Ooh, beautiful names. Or ovum. Plural ova. In human physiology, single cell released from either of the female reproductive organs. Okay, so all together, ovum. Good ovum club. Good ovum club. I'm into it. Okay, so basically you would rather be in the loving family, but you're the least loved. Yes. What would you rather? You know, I got to experience both as a child. Uh, so, you know. That's true. Can't say I particularly loved either. So I'll go with like, whatever, you know, roll the dice, spin the little spinner on the board, whatever it lands on. Well, here, uh, choose heads or tails. Which one? What is heads is going to be loving family. Okay, tails. You ready? Yeah. Flip a coin, Siri. It's tails. You get the domineering parent. I sure did. Okay. Um, so <laughs> today I am talking about Harold Frederick Shipman. You heard of them? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, no, I was looking up a list of doctors and I saw Harold Shipman and knowing that that's what you were doing, I skipped it so that I would know nothing about it. And this would be shocking new information. Awesome. Okay, so uh, my sources were the Harold Shipman biography on the biography.com website, Wikipedia, Shocking, I know. And um, a filmdaily.co news article by Bridget Lusky. All right. Harold Frederick Shipman. He was born on January 14th, 1946, on the Bestwood Council estate in Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, England. <laughs> Everywhere in England sounds fake to me. I <laughs> know. Uh, Nottingham, Nottinghamshire. <laughs> And where are you from? Oh, Nottingham. In Nottinghamshire? <laughs> Dumb. Um, he was the second of, some sources say three and some sources say four. But he was a middle child of Harold Frederick Shipman, a truck driver. They call them lorries in England. Uh, and Vera Britton. Um, his parents were working class and devout Methodists. Um, and... Growing up, Harold was an accomplished athlete. He played rugby, amongst other sports, and excelled at them. Uh, he was super close to his mother, who was reportedly a, quote, difficult and domineering, end quote, woman. Um, ding. Harold is said to have been her favorite child, and they were very, very close throughout his entire childhood. Unfortunately, she... Um, was diagnosed with lung cancer when Harold was 17 years old. 
Um, near the end of her life, Harold's mother was in really high amounts of pain and would have uh, morphine administered by a, a doctor that came to her home um, as part of her end-of-life end care. Um, and Harold would watch and was like mesmerized by the way that morphine just like made his mom's pain go away. And she was able to experience these like moments of peace in a very, very difficult end of her life. I smell an opioid addiction. <laughs> okay. And also like, I want to say, I get it. <laughs> I get like how people could become addicted to it. Uh, to like any kind of intense pain medicine because when I was in the hospital after my car wreck, they gave me Demerol, which is a super... I was given both morphine and Demerol, and in my opinion, Demerol is stronger um, than morphine. It was like insane. And I remember like I would press my little button to get a nurse to come in to give me pain medicine, and when she gave me the Demerol, I could feel... I could actively feel it going through my veins because everywhere that, like, when the Demerol reached a new part of my body, the pain just disappeared. Like, on contact. That's insane. It was crazy. And so I get how people, especially people with chronic pain, could, you know, end up with an addiction um, because it is, like, truly powerful. I do understand the concept. Yeah, like, I do understand the concept, but to me, me and pain medicine don't have a good relationship. We're good when we're good, but when we're fading out, I end up crying in the shower thinking I've merged bodies with somebody Oh, yeah, else. it made me super emotional, which you, you remember. <laughs> and, like, it definitely, like, wrecked me mentally, um... But when you're, I think once once you get to like a certain degree of pain, it kind of not literally nothing matters except making the pain stop. And I had never appreciated pain medicine. I'd always been the type of person to avoid pain medicine because I I didn't like the way it made me feel until I was like super super injured. Um, and so I think like you can get to a point where it's like, well, this could fuck up everything else about me, but as long as I don't hurt anymore, you know, sad. But whatever. Anyway, Damn. I, I'm sad. just saying, like, I get it. <laughs> uh, I get how it could happen. So after uh, his mother's death, Harold received a scholarship to Leeds University to study medicine. And it's, like, widely speculated that his fascination with and the active role that he played in his mother's end-of-life medical care was what inspired him to become a doctor. Which kind of makes sense, you know, his mother was really suffering and he saw this man come and take her pain away. Um, so who wouldn't be inspired by, by that? Uh, Harold met his wife, Primrose, when he was 19. They married when she was only 17 and at the time she was also five months pregnant with their first child. They would go on to have one more. I haven't heard that name <laughs> in real life. Primrose, I think it's cute. I've only ever heard it in The Hunger Games. It is cute. God, I, I won't ruin that for anybody. But like... Well, are, is it a Hunger Games spoiler? Yes. Okay, we'll just say there's going to be a Hunger Games spoiler. So if, you know, you're like 10 years late to that, skip ahead 15 seconds. Okay. Yes. But the 
sad irony of Katniss volunteering to save Primrose's life just to come to the end of Mockingjay to have Primrose in front of her explode is just upsetting. It just like goes to show you that you should never do anything for anyone else. Because in the end, they will explode. They will explode in front of your eyes and it will have been all for nothing. <laughs> Lesson learned. Mockingjay, <laughs> Hunger Games series. Give it a read. Real good. I I read all three books in the span of three days. Whoa. And I, yeah, I was like sobbing. It was like 4 a.m. when I finished the last book and I just sat in my bed sobbing for like two hours and I'd seen the movies I generally knew what happened but the the books are really good oh you watched the movies before you read the books yeah wow I I read the books before I watched the movies that was and I I mean look understandably anybody I guess post or pre-film or even during the film okay you're gonna cry but it's a good It's good. It's all good. Crying anyway. is good. Primrose. Okay. Um, yes. So he began working at... Okay, so I'm not sure if it's Pontefract or Pontefract, because it's P-O-N-T-E-F-R. Does it make a difference? It doesn't sound real. I just don't want any... We actually do have listeners in the UK. <laughs> so, like, I am sorry. I'm going to butcher every pronunciation of every place. Um, anyway, so he began working at the Pontefract General... They're white people, Bailey. Yeah. Don't be sorry. They'll be fine. Uh, the Pontefract General Infirmary in Pontefract West Riding of Yorkshire, which is a place. And in 1974, he took his first position as a general practitioner at the Abraham Omarad Medical Center in Todd Morden. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, okay. All of these sound like they're from a a Tolkien book that they're just like made up. Okay. Um, and the, so that was in 1974. In 1975, he was caught forging prescriptions of pethidine, which is also known as Demerol, that wonder drug I was telling you that I had in the hospital, for his own use. So you were right, Charles. You predicted it. Uh, he was fine. Like one of those uh, drug dogs. You can sniff it, even from <laughs> from their <audio>. childhood. <laughs> um, he was fined six hundred dollars for forging those prescriptions, and he did briefly attend a drug rehabilitation clinic in New York. Um, after rehab, he became a general practitioner elsewhere at the Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde near Manchester in nineteen seventy seven. He actually stayed at Donnybrook for almost 20 years, and he was well-liked among his co-workers, although he did develop a reputation for being arrogant among the junior staff. He had kind of like a better-than-you attitude, which, like, he's a doctor, so that tracks. Um, and maybe he was. And maybe, you know. Maybe he was. Who's to say? He's not better than us because I'm going to tell you more about him and you're going to you're going to know he is not a member of the Good Egg Club. Um, okay, so he worked at Donnybrook uh, as a general practitioner throughout the entire 1980s and 
1993, uh, he established his own medical practice at 21 Market Street, which uh, that medical practice flourished and he became a respected member of the community. Um, he actually ended up also being interviewed in an edition of the Granada television documentary called World in Action, and he was interviewed on the topic of how the mentally ill should be treated in the community. Which, like, is it a discussion we should be having? Absolutely. Should this dude be the authority on it? Absolutely not. And we'll talk more about why. So... Um, in the 1990s, the local undertaker noticed that Dr. Shipman's patient, patients, uh, especially older female patients, seemed to be dying at a really high rate, a rate much higher than his, like any other doctors in the area. And they all have the same poses, like physical poses in death. Uh, almost all of them were fully clothed and they were usually like sitting up or reclined. Um, so the undertaker like went to Shipman and was like, hey, um, this is kind of weird. weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is like weird. And uh, Shipman was like, honestly, guy, like, don't worry about it. There's nothing to be concerned about. And the undertaker was like, okay. Uh, I love how it's like so funny to me. Like every time we talk about uh, like a criminal, someone catches them and then like brings it up to them and they're always like, nah. And like that's a good enough answer for like a while. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, you know, I've never personally confronted or been confronted um, about murder, but you know, it does kind of seem almost like outlandish, right? And you're like, I mean, did he kill him? And then they're they're like, surely not. And you're like, you know what? I'll talk to him about it. And you talk to the person who you might kind of know, and then you're like, hey, did you do it? And they're like, no. You'd be like, well, okay, <laughs> yeah, I guess not. I'm just being crazy. Yeah. Um. But he wasn't. And in 1998, uh, a colleague of Dr. Shipman, Dr. Susan Booth, also noticed that uh, his patients were dying at an alarmingly high rate and also and noticed that they were all dying in like a similar position. So she actually uh, alerted the local coroner, coroner's office, who then contacted the police. So, um, a covert investigation was conducted by, by the police, but Harold Shipman was cleared of any wrongdoing. Um, they went over all of his records and they all matched up with uh, the patients. Like, it was clear in each patient who had passed away, it was clear in their medical records that that was the way they were heading. Like, it didn't seem hinky, didn't seem out of the blue. However, the investigators did not contact the general medical council or check Harold Shipman's previous criminal records. So they had no idea that he had been convicted of writing, like of forging prescriptions for Demerol for his own use. They didn't know that he had done that in the past and they didn't alert the medical council who like might've had more of an idea of like how to figure out what was going on. And we will talk about why the investigators didn't pick up on anything hinky in the records later. Okay, so anyway, a colleague brings it up. 
the police are alerted. They do a little investigation, like, very secretive under wraps. They're like, this guy checks out. And uh, he keeps working. Okay. On June 24th, 1998, Kathleen Grundy is found dead in her home. So she was a wealthy 81-year-old widow, and her daughter, Angela Woodruff, was pretty surprised when uh, an attorney, they call them solicitors in England, uh, named Brian Burgess, told her that her mother had made a will, but he had doubts about its authenticity because that will did not leave anything to her children. (laughs) but left 386,000 pounds to her doctor, Harold Shipman. No, 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 no. Which like, sure, that's something people do. Um, And Angela Woodruff- Maybe in England. Yeah, and Angela Woodruff had a really great relationship with with her mother. It was not like Kathleen Grundy's children were estranged from her like she was close to her children it didn't make any sense that she wouldn't leave them anything in her will and she especially you know she was hella rich so angela went to the police and like implored them to investigate her mother's death um so the coroner conducted like they exhumed her body and the coroner conducted an autopsy and they actually found that she died of an overdose of diamorphine which is used for pain control in Terminal cancer patients. Hmm. Sounds a little bit like someone from Harold Shipman's past. Who could have guessed? (laughs) Uh, So they confront, the police confront Harold Shipman with this. And he claims that Kathleen had actually been an addict. um, And she'd been, because diamorphine is also heroin. Uh, so he claimed that she'd been an addict. She'd been administering this to herself. And he was like, here, take a look at my medical records on my computer. You'll see that, like, I cataloged that she struggled with this addiction throughout my entire time treating her. So the police are like, okay, we're just going to take your computer real quick. Go through your medical records. Just verify that. Well, what this dumbass didn't realize is that the computer logged a timestamp of every time that a new note was added to the medical file. And further investigation revealed that all of the notes indicating that Kathleen suffered from a heroin addiction were added after her death. Mm-hmm. Like, what an idiot. Justice. So... Shipman was arrested on September 7th, 1998, and during a search of his home, the police found a Brother typewriter, which was the same type of Brother typewriter that was used to type the will of Kathleen Grundy that was in question. Um, So after solving the murder of Kathleen, the police were like, hmm, we should probably look into the other deaths that have happened to this dude's patients. <laughs> like, don't you hate that? It's like finally one of the worst ones, or like whatever. And then they're like, "Oh, I guess we sh- these might all be connected now. I guess we should finally look into these." Right. And so that's what happened in our serial killer one, at least in mine. It like always happens. It's like if 
this could have been stopped so much sooner. Like this, this could, this could have been caught sooner because people were suspicious of him before, like before Kathleen was killed, and it was ignored. Right. Which to mention, serial killers, episode fifteen. Yeah, I think earlier that I I said that. Um, his colleague Susan Booth came forward in 1998, but I think it was actually 1988. So I think like it was years prior that people started to like think that it, he was hinky. Um, so yeah, but did they stop him then? Nope. No. Why would they? Uh, okay. So the police are like, you know what? We're gonna actually do our job, and we're gonna go look into these other deaths. Um, and they, uh, and and so like in the previous inquiry where they found nothing and like they didn't contact the medical council and they like basically just took like a cursory look at his medical records, they were widely criticized for that later because it turned out that the police that were, the officers that were assigned to looking into him um, were really inexperienced. So this time they put like some experienced officers on it and they're, they're like combing through his records. And as they're going through them, they notice that there's this pattern of <clears throat> him doing exactly what he did to Kathleen to many other elderly women. And some people, some people that weren't elderly women, but largely elderly women. And the pattern was he would administer a lethal dose of diamorphine, sign the patient's death certificates, and then go back into their medical records to falsify them to, to make it look like the patient had been in poor health prior to their death. Um, bad egg. Bad egg. And also, Harold Shipman had urged the families of his victims to cremate their relatives um, in, in the vast majority of cases. And a lot of times they did. So the police had to, only, like, they had to focus on, uh, like, people who were buried so that they could actually, like, exhume their bodies and and test them for diamorphine. Mm. Uh, but some some families did listen to Harold Shipman and had their family member cremated uh, after they died in his care. And he would um, he would tell the the families that, you know, we don't need to like no investigation is needed. we we know exactly why this death happened. Um, like there's nothing that an investigation could tell you, even in instances where, their relatives have died of causes that the families had never heard of before. Like Kathleen, like, um, it'd be like a family would show up and he'd be like, oh, like, sorry, your mother had a heroin addiction. I know you never knew about it, but that's totally what it was. So you might as well cremate her because there's nothing else to see here, folks. If someone is ever, like, really urging you to cremate someone, don't do it. Yeah, and call there's probably a detective. A bad, a bad egg behaviorist behind this. Mm-hmm. And like the thing is, is like cremation, fine. Whatever. Who cares? You're dead. But if someone really wants you to cremate, don't do it. Or like at least get 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 an exam done. Get a, yes, an like autopsy a second done. opinion perhaps. Yes. Okay. So following extensive investigations, which included bunch of exhumations and autopsies the police charged Harold Shipman with 15 individual counts of murder as well as one count of forgery for the will that he forged on behalf of Kathleen 
Uh, so his trial began at the Preston Crown Court on October 5th, 1999. He was charged with the murders of 15 women by lethal injections of diamorphine, all between 1995 and 1998. And I'm going to read their names now because they matter. So uh, the victims that he was tried for were Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Mary, uh, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Nuttall, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Meller, Joan Mila, and Kathleen Grenby. Ugh, so sad. Um, in 2000, after six days of deliberation, he was found guilty on all counts. Good. Uh, he was subsequently sentenced to life in prison for each of the 15 murders and a sentence of four years imprisonment to be served concurrently for the forgery charge. Uh, Harold Shipman is the only doctor in the history of British medicine to be found guilty of murdering his patients. The only one? Isn't that wild? The only one. Others have been accused but acquitted. He's the only one that's been found guilty. Oh, okay. So not to say that he's like the only one who's done it. In my mind, I was like, the only he's bad a- one. No. He's the only one we know for sure has done it. Okay, so that's 2000. The following year, in January of 2001, Chris Gregg, who was a senior West Yorkshire police detective, was chosen to lead an investigation of 22 of the deaths that occurred um, under Harold Shipman's care in West Yorkshire when he was practicing medicine there. And then after this, the Shipman inquiry, which was submitted in July 2002, concluded... Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Concluded that Harold Shipman had killed at least 218 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. Bad egg behavior. 218 at least. Uh, During which time he practiced at Todd Morden and Hyde. Um, Dame Janet Smith, who was the judge who submitted the Shipman inquiry, the report that like summarized all what they found when they investigated him, um, admitted that there were many more deaths that were very suspicious but could not be definitively ascribed mm. to Harold Shipman. Uh, the vast majority of his victims were elderly women in good health. And for what? Harold? So there was like a series of reports and uh, that like culminated in, in what we know now. And the last and the sixth and final report uh, th- that was submitted by Janet Smith in 2005. She reported that she believed that uh, Harold had killed three additional patients and she had serious suspicion about four additional deaths, including that of a four-year-old girl. In total, 459 people died while under his care between 1971 and 1998, but we don't know how many of those were murder victims exactly. It is estimated by Dame Janet Smith that Shipman's total victim count over the 27-year period of his practice of medicine was 250. 
That's a lot of people. It is. Um, so there, some people think that it was like an angel of mercy thing that like he projected his mother onto these people, especially because the majority of his victims were elderly women. And like, despite being in good health, he was like playing out the scenario where like, you know, the doctor is giving morphine was like a good person. And like, maybe he wished his mother hadn't suffered for so long. And he like, I don't know. Um, but a lot of people also just believe that he enjoyed abusing power and it was a lot about like control power over his victims. Yeah. And we'll never know for sure because he, uh, hanged himself in his cell at HM prison Wakefield on January 13th, 2004. He was 57. Um, and his reason for suicide was never completely established, but it's like widely reported that he had told his probation officer that he was considering suicide because if he killed himself, his wife would receive um, National Health Service uh, pension. And she did. And she would not have been entitled. So he was 57 when he when he died. He was almost 58. I think like the next day was his 58th birthday. If he had lived to 60, Primrose would not have received the NHS pension. Good so, like, thing. It, that, no, no, I'm taking that away. No. Well, so also like I don't know how we feel about Primrose because she stood by her husband for a very long time, like even after his incarceration and conviction, but. Around the time of his death, there was some evidence that Primrose was actually starting to suspect that her husband may be guilty. So this might have been another motive why he was, why why he did what he did. Um, but she had uh, written an, a letter to Harold saying, tell me everything, no matter what. That's a quote from the letter. So it and seems like... I, no, I don't think so. He maintained his innocence till his death, which, like, we know, dude. Like, we know that you are not innocent. Um, and also, like, he, Harold Shipman, during his, like, time in prison, he refused to take part in courses which would have encouraged him to acknowledge his crimes, um, which led to his privileges being removed temporarily and including the opportunity to call his wife. So it's thought that that also like might have contributed to depression. So there's like a few motives that we speculate. Uh, but like you know, he killed a lot of people. So hopefully he felt really bad about it. To be honest, right. but I don't know if he did. Do we condone suicide? No. No. Uh, do we think it's a good thing? No. No. Um, do we hope he felt really really bad about all that yes. he did? Yes. And, like, is it particularly sad that this dude is dead? No. no. <laughs> um, so, his case, um, and also, like, uh, a bunch of recommendations that were made in the Shipman Inquiry reports, actually did lead to some positive change to standard medical procedures in the UK. Um, so, many doctors started changing the way that they dispensed medicine, and uh, 
we're especially careful about overprescribing pain medication. It's also thought that this may have led to underprescribing pain medication. So it might have kind of swung too far the other way. Um, but death certification practices were also altered. And the biggest change was there was this movement away from single doctor general practices to multiple doctor general practices. Um, and this wasn't like a direct like a direct result of the the Shipman inquiry report. Um, but the report had made it very clear that there wasn't enough safeguarding and monitoring of doctors' decisions. So uh, it's so that inspired a lot of doctors to start working in practices together so that there would be more accountability. Right, and like more, which seems like a good balances. thing. Balances, yes, that's a good thing. Yeah, and yeah, so um, that is the the story, the murder, and the aftermath of the only British doctor to ever be convicted of killing his patients, Doctor Harold Shipman. That's a lot, <laughs> right? <sighs> Two hundred and fifty Scott... estimated victims. <sighs> so much like imagine imagine like a doctor that you have now that you like mildly to moderately trust to make medical decisions for you is maybe killing other people on purpose or is gonna kill you you know that that's a scary thought and do do we want to plant this inside your head no no we want you to see your doctor as long as they're not a harmful person if they seem weird maybe check out another doctor there's a lot there's a lot (laughs) yeah i just and it's also just it pisses me off because like continually the fucks who do this they do this to like vulnerable people in their care which is so you're a doctor you're supposed to help people that's kind of your whole thing right that's like the whole vibe that you're supposed to do that's your whole job description help the ill and instead notoriously what is broken in you that would make you in any way think it was like okay or justifiable or like allow would even like let you allow yourself to just take a bunch of pain medication and inject it into someone and kill them and then to do that 249 more times like i it's so far outside of anything i can imagine it it like i don't know i think this is why i'm so interested in true crime because it just baffles me i can't imagine i can't like put myself in this person's shoes at all even close yeah i it's just unchecked mental illness and they should be seeing a doctor <laughs> doctors well, but please continue to see it. not a doctor well yeah psychologists are doctors but also there are plenty of people who are mentally ill who never kill anyone or hurt anyone so it's not just like unchecked mental that illness too. there are people plenty of mentally ill people who who don't get treatment who never go on to hurt anyone. And overall, mentally ill people are far more likely to be the victim of a crime than perpetrators of crime. So, like, I don't even know that it is mental illness. I think you might just be a dick. I think it's a little bit more than a dick. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know. A lot of men, though. Are we seeing a running theme? Anybody else? It's a lot of men. A lot of white men. Once again, running theme? 
<laughs> this is the this, I don't this know. is a white man hate podcast. <laughs> Despite yes. the fact that we have a white man as one of those. <laughs> yes, but I'm gay. My saving grace. So, listen, not only are white men bad, but I have another white man who's also bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> right. Um, but here's the question. Okay, let's say there's a surgery that fixes all your problems and afterwards makes you like the best version of yourself. Okay? Good. Fun. Would you rather have all the doctors reassure you that this will most likely work out for you, possibly up to like 80% like reassurance, but you're you're the first person to ever undergo this surgery? Or would you rather this be a surgery that is professionally researched and practiced, but has like a 45 to 50% chance of working. Am I going to get the surgery anyway? Yep. Then I guess I would rather be thoroughly researched and practiced. I'd rather go into it like knowing the the actual risk. Although when I um, had to get my collarbone reconstructed, I stayed up like all night the night before Googling cases of people who had died getting their collarbones reconstructed. And then I became 100% convinced that I was going to die getting my collarbone reconstructed. Oh and so, my God. <laughs> I do feel like I would have a really, like, if I have to get the surgery anyway, well then, no. Okay, knowing me, I guess I would rather just, like, have a bunch of doctors tell me that it's, like, an 80% success rate if I have to get it anyway. I'd rather them, like, even if it's not the most accurate, I'd rather them just tell me that because... If I know it's like a 45% success rate, I've already written the will. I've already planned the funeral. Like, I'm just going to assume that I'm not going to make it. Well, I don't think you're going to die. It's just you're going to come out not not rid of all your problems and not the best version of yourself. Well, that's so me now. So I either I'm either me now or I'm me better. Yep. Then I don't care. (laughs) then I don't care I've been dealing with me now just fine for 27 years so just fine we're lying to ourselves today I don't know what you're talking about I I am proud of who I am and that sounds like lying but I mean it (laughs) but I mean it no and you should be I like me you should be I like (laughs) me is that a song I don't know. I feel like it's bad of me to choose it, but I feel like I'd go for the 80% one and be the first one. Just be like, well, you guys think it's going to work. Let's go for it. Yes. Yeah, so, I, I think I would do that one too. <laughs> get into it. You and I, experimental surgery. Because uh, then like, if it fails, we can sue and then we'll be rich. And then who cares if our problems are solved? We can pay for our problems to be solved. Um, so we come to Dr. Walter Freeman. My sources are a Guardian article titled, He Was Bad, So They Put an Ice Pick in His Brain, and Wikipedia, Walter Jackson Freeman II. We love Wikipedia. I wish they would sponsor us, but they also ask for donations, so don't think that's going to be happening. 
1895, a little boy was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His father was a well-known Civil War surgeon, and I assume in Philadelphia he was on the good side, um, the North. So there... This little boy, um, he graduated from Yale University and went on to become a PhD certified neurologist, right? Sounds like a great guy, but this is not the great guy podcast. So this is the man that is, as Bailey knows, is infamous for lobotomies. Now, before we like get into his lobotomy technique... Uh, there was multiple other lobotomy-like surgery practices. Um, in 1935, in Portugal, uh, there was a physician who did a lacotomy procedure, which was intended to treat mental illness, and took small corings from a patient's frontal lobes. Now, this was done... There was some sort of drilling into the head and taking pieces of the brain. Uh, this guy, his name was Egas Agus Moniz. Um, he became the mentor and idol for our Dr. Freeman, who then modified the surgery the first time, this procedure, and renamed it the lobotomy. And instead of taking corings from the frontal lobe, his procedure severed the connection between the frontal lobes and the thalamus. From what I could find, the primary function of the thalamus is to relay motor and sensory signals to the cerebral cortex, which is a very important thing for your brain to do. Uh, Now, Walter Freeman was, like we said, a neurologist, but not a neurosurgeon. So he enlisted the help of a neurosurgeon, James Watts. And one year after the first leucotomy, on September 14th, 1936, Freeman directed Watts through the very first prefrontal lobotomy in the U.S. on housewife Alice Hood Hammett in Topeka, Kansas. Or of Topeka, Kansas. I don't know where it happened. Uh, By November... Only two months after performing this first lobotomy surgery, Freeman and Watts had already worked on 20 cases, including several follow-up operations. Now, he then modified it after finding that there was this Italian doctor who was working on the brain through the little space in between your tear duct and your eye. You can get to the brain that way. Real fun, right? Uh, so he came up with the new lobotomy, okay? And it's called the... the uh, Transorbital. Like, tra- tra- yeah, transorbital lobotomy. lobotomy. And let me uh, graphically describe it for you. Um, in its later inception, to treat anything from mental illness to no good reason, um, this lobotomy is very slender metal object resembling that of an ice pick, though in its beginning was just an ice pick, was inserted into that little space, like I said, in between your tear duct and your eye, pushed all the way to the back, and then hammered into your skull, and then moved back and forth to sever connections between the frontal lobes and the prefrontal cortex of your brain. Scramble. 
You might wonder, what does the prefrontal cortex of my brain do? Well, goodtherapy.org says the prefrontal cortex helps people set and achieve goals. It receives input from multiple regions of the brain to process information and adapts accordingly. The prefrontal cortex contributes to a wide variety of functions, including focusing your attention, predicting the consequences of one's actions, like anticipating the events and the environment, impulse control, planning for the future, and coordinating and adjusting complex behaviors. For example, I can't do A until B happens. Now, these are very important parts of your brain. <laughs> and I'd argue that most of the parts of your brain are probably pretty important. I mean, that might be a controversial statement. I know we are we are filled with controversial statements on this <laughs> podcast, but Yes, I feel like that is also true. I don't really want anyone scrambled egging any part of my brain. I don't either, especially not through my eye. No. Um. So by 1942, this duo had performed over 200 lobotomy procedures and had published results claiming that 63% of patients had improved, 24% were reported to be unchanged, and 14% were worse after surgery. So... Um, and this was those statistics were the original lobotomy before the transorbital lobotomy Um, 10 years after so eventually good old Dr. Freeman decided to start traveling the country and this is pretty much direct quotes from the uh, Guardian article so he was a bit of a showman. And look, from what I read too, this man loved photographical archiving, okay? Any surgery that he was doing, he loved a picture. And even it was said that in one of the surgeries that he was performing, as he stopped to do a picture, he like kind of slipped in the instrument too far into the brain and like really damaged this person's brain just for stopping to take a picture. Here's another controversial statement. Maybe wait till after the surgery is over to take a picture or maybe just have them take it and still do what you're supposed to be doing. Um, These kids and their damn phones. I know. Um, So, yes, he was a bit of a showman, so they say. And he was traveling the country sometimes. And listen, okay. Traveling the country. That I, I just said that very nonchalantly, okay? This man would showboat all around the country and do lobotomies like in a van in any place that wasn't exactly a medical facility because this procedure could be done just about anywhere uh, because the, the basic thing that he would do is use electroshock therapy to kind of numb the patient out, put him in a sedative state, and then just it was hammer time on that face. So sometimes he ice picked both eye sockets simultaneously, one with each hand. And he didn't really follow a lot of medical formalities. Like I mentioned, he chewed gum while operating and displayed impatience with what he called an uh, I'm sorry. With what he called quote-unquote, all germ crap. 
uh, routinely failing to sterilize his hands or wear gloves, and despite a 14% fatality rate, he performed 3,439 lobotomies in his entire lifetime. Yuck. Yuck, yuck, yuck. So, you might wonder, what about the people who survived? Well, for the survivors, the outcomes were very widely different. Okay, some were crippled for life. Others were just in a vegetative state forever. One, John F. Kennedy's sister, Rose, was operated on in 1941 at the request of her father. Um, She just had mild learning difficulties and she was left incapacitated, sorry, yes, incapacitated by the procedure and spent the rest of her life in various institutions and died at the age of 86. Yet, sometimes, the operation appeared to have a calming, desensitizing effect on those suffering from mental illness. The lobotomy's mixed results was a symptom of its imprecision. It was a hit-and-miss thing, and developed. Um, it was developed at a time when little was known about the very specific nature of our brain's structure. At least... Not to them. They thought to themselves, we've got it all. We know all about the brain. Let's get into it. They should not have gotten into it. So we do have a couple accounts from people who did survive lobotomies. We have Derek Hutchinson, a 62-year-old grandfather who had a lobotomy in 1974, and he says it was without his consent. And... It's, it's a different surgeon. It's not Dr. Freeman. Um, yeah, a lot of surgeons did lobotomies, bro. Yes, I mean, it, it became very famous. Um, but this can give you an idea of what it might have felt like had you not had uh, any kind of sedation. He says that he was awake throughout his whole operation. And when asked what it felt like, he said... It's a situation you should only go through once in your life. And I don't even want to do it that many times if I'm being honest. Me neither. And he said, oh, okay. It's a situation you should only go once in your life. And that's when you're dying. He went to finish. Oh, word, yeah. It felt like a broom handle was being pushed in my brain Mm. and my head was splitting apart. How? Yeah. Not a good thing. Uh, So... We also get to focus on the story of Howard Dully, someone who received a lobotomy from actual Dr. Freeman and was able to tell his tale. Now, he wrote a book later on called, I think it was just called My Lobotomy. I kind of forgot to mention that in there. Um, he was 11 years old when he initially met Dr. Freeman, and he said he wasn't scary or anything. And in his words, he said he was warm, personable, and easy to get along with. Was I fearful? No. I had no idea what he was going to do with me. Right. So the, what's even scarier too is like meeting somebody who's warm and personable and they're going to drive something through your face. And they're going to blow Ugh. their nose directly into their hands before they do it. <laughs> right. Uh, they said he was a seemingly average boy and he was brought to Freeman for mostly reasons unknown. But we'll get into that here in a minute. Uh, Freeman diagnosed Dolly as schizophrenic. And this is a direct quote from Dr. Freeman. 
And about uh, a reminder, this is an 11 year old child. He is clever at stealing, but always leaves something behind to show me what he's done. Freeman recorded in his notes from October 1960. If it's a banana, he throws the peel at the window. If it's a candy bar, he leaves the wrapper around someplace. He does a good deal of daydreaming and when asked about it says, I don't know. He is defiant at times. You tell me to do this and I'll do that. He has a vicious expression on his face some of the time. Now, that's a kid. To me, right, that just sounds like a kid. And unfortunately, at 1.30 p.m., December 16th, 1960, he was wheeled into an operating... This says operating theater. Yeah, that's what... Don't like that. That's what they're called. Yeah, don't like it. And given a series of electric shocks to sedate him, and all he remembers after that is that everything is just kind of murky. He woke up the next day. His eyes were swollen and bruised, and he was running a high fever. He recalls severe pain in his head and the discomfort of the hospital gown, which was open in the back. He had no idea what had happened and said, direct quote, I was in a mental fog. I was like a zombie. I had no awareness of what Freeman had done. He mentions for later in his life, I don't feel physically different from anyone else. I get eye infections because I think they destroyed my tear ducts. Uh, about the most unusual thing you would notice about me is my size, as he is now a six foot seven man, <laughs> which is very tall. Uh, he says he didn't think to bring it up for years, years and years. He said it felt like a secret for him to talk about his lobotomy. And he was, after that, in and out of mental institutions, jails, and halfway houses. He was homeless, drug addicted, and alcoholic. A petty criminal with little concept of how to live a normal life. He assumes that all this happened because of his stepmother, Lou. She was a very cold woman. She didn't like him. And after meeting Dr. Freeman just once, she convinced uh, his father to let Freeman go through with the procedure. And she died in 2001, so a lot of the reasons of why it happened really died with her. And it's really sad um, that he kind of doesn't get any I was, I was like, I'm not super sad that she's dead. <laughs> no, I'm not either. Um, what it mentioned was that she, like, when he lived with her, she would, like, beat him and make him eat meals by himself and... Uh, we're just kind of isolated. She's like, why is this kid, like, not the perfect little angel? It's like, because right. you were a cunt. That is why. Plain and simple. He says, I think I was angry at society for a long time after, but I went through that, and now I don't think there's any point in dwelling on it. I blame everyone for what happened, including myself. I was a mean little ruffian. Lou was looking for a way to get me out of the house for a solution to the problem, and Freeman was looking for a subject. Both of them came together, and whoopity do. So I hate that he blames himself, because, like, you're allowed to be a brat when you're a kid, you know? Right, because you're learning how to be a person, and, like, you're bound to exhibit negative unhealthy behavior yeah but that's no reason to drive an ice pick through your eye uh, or into your brain he says 
I don't think Freeman was evil. I think he was misguided. He tried to do what he thought was right and he couldn't give it up. That was the problem. Which, I guess, like, I I don't know that Freeman was necessarily an evil man. I think he was very careless and he's one of those people that is in the medical field just for, like, the experimentation of it, which is not really good. Um, and for, like, the attention, it sounds like. Right. Like, I, I don't think he was really, like, his motivation might have started to help people, but I think that was lost. But, like, there does, there has to, like, come a point where carelessness and selfishness crosses the line into evil, right? Like, yeah. At the point where you're scrambling the brain of an 11-year-old kid because his stepmom hates him, like, maybe you are evil, Maybe you are evil or maybe you're just, do you think you can be unknowingly evil if you're just kind of, um, like, you believe yourself to be doing the right thing? Yeah. Yeah. But because also, like, I don't even think that it was about doing the right thing for him. He performed 3,000 of these and it had a 14% mortality rate. So he watched people die and he wouldn't even bother to wash his fucking hands. So I don't see at that point. And like the fact that he would like injure someone gravely because he wanted to stop and pose for a picture and like didn't even pay attention to what he was doing. Like right. to me, that's not a person who could be concerned with doing the right thing or helping like I don't think he was misguided I think he was I don't know if I don't think he had like necessarily nefarious intentions but I don't think he gave a shit what happened to these people as right. long as everyone wanted to take his picture I don't, I'm not sure that he was evil but I do think he was a bad person <laughs> I think you I think um, it's evil I think he's I yeah I don't know I mean I I mean, he did kill a lot of people, so that's pretty evil, too. Because, um, yeah, 40% fatality rate is not good. You know, 2%, 1%. You might well, think, Well, it's not okay. like it was like either you're cured or you're dead. It was like you you could feel better or you could lose control of your body or you could have like problems with mental illness for the rest of your life or you right. like, like it was so it was so widely like varied and you'd think after doing just like 10 50 you might see that you're getting such wild results that n- this isn't really working but i guess in his mind he thought maybe for the ones that are working maybe it'll just get there i don't know i, I don't know i honestly I don't it. care about what he thought yeah. but uh, now it's very unclear on the surface. It seems a huge rarity today for lobotomies to still be used, but from what I have seen on the surface, it isn't quite obsolete, which <laughs> scary. Yeah. Um, Freeman died of complications arising from an operation for cancer. In 1972, I'm not mad about it. He was survived by four children, Walter, Frank, Paul, and Lorna, who became defenders of their father's legacy. Paul became 
a psychiatrist in San Francisco, and the eldest, Walter Jr., became a professor of neurology at the University of California, Berkeley. Now, why they defended their father, I don't know. I If, if my father were a doctor, and he had done 3,000-something of these surgeries, and, like, so many people were dying or, like, stuck in vegetative states, I would think, like, this isn't good. This is not, this is not a man that I would defend. I, I, if, I don't know, I think I'd tell somebody at least halfway through, or or hopefully, (laughs) like, at max halfway through, this is not something you should continue doing. You know what I mean? Find something else. Find something less invasive. Find therapy for everybody. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's partially, I guess, genetics and just the bringing up of, um, you know, you're bound to have kids who share your, you're bound to, like, out of, uh, if you have more than one kid, one of them is bound to agree with you and think you were the best and always find a way to justify your actions but yeah yeah, I don't know I I don't get it I don't get defending that type of behavior (laughs) and that type of like actual I mean I guess like proof this does kind of make him a monster and so like no one wants to think of their parent as a monster especially if their parent was loving to them so like maybe he was a good dad still a, a shit person like cool who cares? You were like a, a piece of shit. Right. And from what we see, like he's a charismatic dude and people tend to excuse more charismatic people because they're just that good at manipulation. So yeah, that's really all I have on good old Dr. Freeman or good, bad old Dr. Freeman. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Doctors. Oh my gosh, I, for, I forgot to tell you about my guy. Um, they, good old, good old battle Harold, they um, told his widow, Primrose, uh, they recommended she like not bury him and keep the circumstances of his funeral and burial if she ever did, like when she buried him, uh, very private because they were pretty sure that his grave would be vandalized and like, people might, like, abuse his corpse and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like... Uh, well... That's what you get for being a monster, you know? Right. Just like I told one of, you know, my children, that's the consequence of doing something that you shouldn't have done. <laughs> Can you imagine if, like, lobotomy was still, like, a legitimate recommendation to be made for children? Like, all of our kids would be like getting lobotomies. Yes. <laughs> it's just... And it even mentioned as young as four years old. That's sick. That's like so gross. That's so gross. I don't know. I Just leave your fucking kids alone. <laughs> and I definitely feel like it was used 
for a homo like a cure for homosexuality. I definitely feel like that was in the mix because this was the 1950s yeah. and 40s. No, I'm sure it was. Because it was considered a psychological disorder until the 70s. So yeah. I'm sure. Keep your, like, I just, ugh. it's like the fact that they did it to kids really, really bothers me so much. I know, especially an 11 year old who was just a little unruly. Yeah, I mean, he just sounds like a kid. Like, right. He doesn't, ugh. it's just like, I know. It's so evil. Leave kids them. alone. Leave everybody alone. Just once again, just like I tell my kids, stop touching each other. Leave each other alone. Don't touch each other. <laughs> like you'll stop being angry with everybody if you just stop touching each other. <laughs> and I feel like that there are those two fixes for the world, right? Just talk about it. Use your words and stop touching each other. Done. Everything fixed. So are you more afraid of doctors, less afraid of doctors, or the same after our reports? I think maybe like slightly more, but, and I know that medicine is an ever-evolving field and there's always going to be some new something to try out, but I do feel that we reached some sort of ethics Mm. that don't exactly involve lobotomies or... um, Yeah, I mean, I don't think the murders were ever considered ethical, you know, even in the 80s when they were were happening with my guy. Definitely. What about you? Um, I don't know. Like, I think I'm just more afraid of, of, like, abuses of power in general. And that's a fear that seems to be continually affirmed on this yes, podcast. Okay. Continually mentioned. Oh, I also wanted to mention, um, it wasn't exactly scary, which is why I didn't do it, but um, Dr. Kellogg, who invented Kellogg's cornflakes, um, <laughs> invented cornflakes to curb one of the worst sins, mm. masturbation mm. and lust. And so decided to make a plain, sad food that wasn't meats and meaty and very flavorful because he knew in his soul making plain, sad cornflakes mm. could stop the sin nature, especially when it came to masturbation. But of course, as you know, anybody else would do when you have a bland food, you add salt or sugar to it, and it became our beloved Frosted Flakes, which is like a big F you to Dr. Kellogg, <laughs> because it's like, yeah, nobody wants this, and that's boring, so we're going to add sugar to it, and we're also going to masturbate. And it's like the ingenuity and the perseverance of the human spirit that continues to give hope in a world right. filled with people who want to scramble your brain and stop you from jacking off. And the Frosted Flake is a stunning, simple reminder that even in the darkest of not jacking it times, there is hope. Even when shitty, powerful men do their damnedest to make sure that it is a scary world out there. So hold on to the people you love. Bye. 
Bye. Bye. And get some frosted flakes. <laughs> and jack off. <laughs>